This is a Tech Briefs Media Group podcast. This is Bruce Bennett with NASA Tech Briefs. I'm speaking with Dr. Jim Green, Director of Planetary Science Division at NASA's headquarters in Washington, D.C. Jim, you began your NASA career in 1980 at Marshall Space Flight Center's Magnetospheric Physics Branch, where you developed and managed the Space Physics Analysis Network. What was the Space Physics Analysis Network? Yes, Span. Well, those were fantastic days because um, uh, here we were at Marshall Space Flight Center working with uh, a group that was doing some fabulous uh, uh, mass storage technologies. And uh, we began to load our spacecraft data into huge online optical disk systems uh, that provided rapid access and immediate access to very large quantities of spacecraft data. And then these were, these were the first terabyte archives, online terabyte ar- archives. Mm-hmm. And so I was given the responsibility to, um, uh, to work with them and get the data in and then develop the testing and the test plans. And I suddenly realized how inadequate I was to really be able to test the system. And uh, it, it, it dawned on me and several others in the group that the best way to do that is to get the people that we were working with, the co-investigators, to also help me because they, had, uh, they wanted to get access to this data too. Okay. And that's how come I started investigating a variety of network technologies because all these groups were at various locations in the United States. And so by the end of 1980, we already had several computer links up. And then by 1981 and two, uh, I was bringing, bringing groups on right and left. And um, the bottom line to that is the technology did not prove out to be uh, as useful as we had hoped. It was very cumbersome. It was uh, some of the early attempts for op- using optical disks for online technologies mm-hmm. and, and, and that whole field uh, rapidly changed anyway. But the network was an unbelievable success. We literally had NASA's first Internet going. Okay. And uh, we communicated. We did remote log-on. Email was every day, of course. Uh, The things that we take for granted now, we were doing in 1980. We were developing uh, proposals across the net, and and it was just doing fantastic. And so... um, it really uh, uh, then uh, developed uh, into uh, quite the capability for NASA. And uh, uh, then by 1985, um, a new wrinkle occurred. And, and that turned out to be associated with a spacecraft called um, uh, the uh, International Cometary Explorer, mm-hmm. or ICE. Now, ICE was a spacecraft. Uh, that its previous and primary mission was really a solar wind monitor. It was called IC3, International Sun-Earth Explorer 3, and it was sitting at the L1 Lagrangian point measuring the solar wind. And um, uh, NASA decided at that time to pull it out of that orbit, do a couple neat swing-bys of the Earth and the Moon, and throw it towards a comet called Jacobini's Inner. And, and fly right through the tail. Now, uh, this was important to do. We never, we never had a common encounter before. Mm-hmm. It was a fantastic event, but the really big problem with that was the data system. 
Now, the data system for IC3, when it was sitting at the Lagrangian point, was the data was written to magnetic tapes. You, when you filled a tape, you stuck a tape in a box. Mm -hmm. When you filled the box, then you taped it up and sent it to the investigator. And so the data system, uh, everyone got their data a month later, no real-time anything. And it was very distributed, and it had international investigators and instruments on it from international uh, 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 scientists. And so consequently, the press was used to the JPL encounters of Voyager flying by Saturn and Jupiter and Uranus and Neptune, and, and, and they, wanted to, uh, uh, they wanted to be able to uh, uh, talk to the scientists and, and, and have them uh, tell everybody about the new discoveries within, within uh, um, hours after the encounter. Sure. And this really caused a dilemma. And it dawned on us the best thing we could possibly do was to use the network, put the data on the network, send the data to the remote sites where all the investigators were, had them analyze the data, then bring the data back, and then have the principal investigators at a central location at Goddard review that data, make the discoveries, have the press conference, and make it look exactly like the press was used to with the really big encounters from the Voyagers. Mm -hmm. The problem was we had European investigators. And so once we got the approval from the project to use SPAN, I immediately started working with ESA. And, um, uh, and, and they were just wonderful to work with. We came up with an international link and then into Darmstadt, Germany, and then ESA uh, took that link and, and, and sent it out to the investigators, and voila, we connected Europe. And this was 1985, September of 1985, the encounter occurred. It worked perfectly. The scientists saw their data after it was distributed to the remote sites and analyzed with plot files and analysis back to them. And it was just a rousing success. And in fact, uh, in September, we're celebrating the 25th year of uh, that encounter. And, um, and it really was one of the highlights of, of how we used the network. By 1987, we were in Japan, and by uh, uh, 1992, we were in we were in Russia, connected to connected to Iki. So, so Span really was the beginning of uh, NASA's internet, and, and and just a tremendous capability for the science community. Since August 2006, you've been the director of NASA's Planetary Science Division. What is the Planetary Science Division, and how does it contribute to NASA's overall mission? Well, NASA's Planetary Science uh, uh, Division is really all about uh, understanding the origin and evolution of the solar system, uh, really looking for life beyond Earth. In other words, what are the conditions that could provide a, a, a habit habitat for life, and is there life on other planets or other parts of our solar system, perhaps even moons? Mm -hmm. And then finally, uh, understanding the environment well enough to determine what those hazards are for human habitability or eventual habitability into the solar system. Now, that's our broad objectives and goals, and we accomplish that through a variety of spectacular missions. We have missions at many locations in our solar system, and this next year we're going to have some really unbelievable milestones. And in fact, um, in November, uh, we will have one of our spacecraft uh, named Epoxy, uh, 
uh, used to be the deep impact uh, spacecraft, uh, but now we're retargeting it to another comet. So we'll fly by uh, Comet Hartley 2 uh, in November, on November 4th uh, of this year. Uh, in March of next year, uh, we will fly by, or sorry, February of next year, February 14th actually of next year, uh, we're going to fly by another comet uh, with the, the Stardust spacecraft that we've re renamed uh, Stardust Next, uh, but that comet is uh, Temple One. Now, Temple One, we've already been by, by with Deep Impact, and we've had an impactor on it. But with Stardust, we're going to fly by Temple One, and we're going to look at it, and we're going to hopefully see the impact region. But in addition to that, we'll be able to see that comet after it's gone by the sun through its sublimation phase and really determine from a before and after picture of going through that phase what happened to the comet. What does the comet do in terms of, it, of how it sublimates and how it, how it emits the material uh, that, that it holds out into the solar wind and therefore out into, into, the, um, into uh, uh, the solar system. Mm -hmm. So uh, two fabulous co comet encounters are coming up. Now in addition to that, uh, what we want to do, or what we're going to do then in um, uh, March is our spacecraft messenger. Messenger is going to get into orbit around Mercury. Now Mercury is a fabulous planet. We've flown by it now uh, three times with Messenger, uh, and, a, and several times prior to that in the in the 60s and early 70s with uh, one of the Mariners. And uh, uh, Messenger will get into orbit and be able to study that body like like we've never done before. Now Mercury is a little bit bigger than our Moon. Uh, it's a, it's a, a small planet by size, a small terrestrial planet but it is extremely dense. In fact, it almost has the same density of the Earth, even though it's much, much smaller. The core we now understand of, of, um, of Mercury is larger than the core of the Earth. Now, these are really puzzling things, and we hope by getting into orbit and really studying it for um, uh, two Mercury years or more, that we will really be able to understand uh, how, that, how that planet forms so close to the sun and why these properties are so unusual about it. In addition to that, in July of next year, we have another spacecraft called Dawn. And Dawn is going to get into orbit around a fabulous asteroid called Vesta. Now Vesta is, a, is an enormous uh, uh, asteroid, more than 500 kilometers in diameter. You know, so uh, it is um, uh, quite a, uh, a fascinating asteroid. It's not, uh, it's, uh, 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 it's in the inner belt, and we will be in orbit approximately a year before we then break that orbit and go on to the biggest asteroid called uh, Ceres. Uh, uh, but that will happen then in the year later. Then we'll have three launches. In August, Juno will be launched and going to Jupiter. In September, Grail will be launched going to the moon. In November, MSL, the Mars Science Laboratory, will be launched and going to Mars. And then within nine or so months after that, it will land on Mars. Uh, so we have a litany of some fabulous set of activities that are going on. And each and every one of these are studying uh, those objects and those, those bodies 
and, and roving on planets in a way that we've never done before. And I believe that, that after these milestones, we'll see some fabulous science come out of it. As you just noted, a big part of the Planetary Science Division's focus is the search for life or some evidence of life elsewhere in our solar system, places such as Mars or the moons of Jupiter and other bodies like these comets and asteroids you've been talking about. In the grand scheme of things, why is the search for life on other planets so important to NASA? Well, the search for life is really a, a fundamental question that we, I believe, as humans are drawn towards, innately drawn towards. We are quite interested to determine how unique this planet is. Now, planet Earth, obviously, there's nothing like it. We've not found anything like planet Earth. I mean, it's lush, it's beautiful, it's, it's certainly habitable to our race. And, and the conditions uh, that created this, we also are interested to determine if there's other Earth-like planets elsewhere in the solar system. Okay. However, the first step we're taking towards understanding how life could occur at other locations beyond Earth is really taking a good look at those con uh, of what the habitable conditions for life are in our own solar system. Now, indeed, as you mentioned, we have some fabulous missions that are going to locations that have, that will take that step closer to understanding uh, habitability of uh, like Mars and other locations, but also whether there might be life there. And, and MSL, Mars Science Laboratory, is a perfect example of that. Now, MSL uh, is quite the, what we would call the astrobiology laboratory. It has the ability to, to uh, uh, make a variety of measurements. One measurement that we're quite interested in is uh, following up our new discovery that Mars is emitting methane. Now, methane can be emitted uh, biologically, of course. Uh, everyone is well aware of that, but it also can be uh, uh, generated what we call abiotically, in other words, with non-biological processes. And so by looking at the isotopes of methane, MSL will give us an indication another indication of whether that methane is being generated by life on Mars or not. Now, this methane that we've been observing on Mars is really spectacular. It's variable. That's quite interesting. But it also, we believe, should have a very short life because of the ultraviolet radiation and other uh, environments that we know about on Mars mm -hmm. uh, uh, don't allow methane to last for very long. It therefore must be produced on a regular basis. So this to, to us is quite intriguing. We're quite interested in following that up and understanding that. And of course, uh, we're now also doing research in the outer part of our solar system, places like Europa. Now Europa is just a fabulous, unbelievable moon of Jupiter. Uh, Europa is fairly large. Uh, it is not quite as big as our own moon, but it has some significant differences. It's, it has a very uh, a hefty ice crust all around it, and we now know that it has more water in ocean form, in liquid form, below that ice crust than the Earth has water. And that's quite fascinating. We want to know more about that. It looks like it is an environment that... Uh, 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 because of the energy that might be associated with keeping that liquid 
but keeping the ice in liquid form below the ice shell and, and potential uh, sources of, of, uh, of food um, and other organics, it, it, it really is a very intriguing environment. We really need to follow up with that, and we, we're, we have plans to, to do that. So the, the life question is of natural interest, and in planetary science, it's all about looking at our own planetary systems and bodies to determine their habitability. And um, I think we're going to we're we're in store for some really fantastic surprises. In April 2010, noted British astrophysicist Dr. Stephen Hawking attracted a lot of media attention by commenting that in our search for extraterrestrial life humans should think very carefully about whether or not we should broadcast our existence to a potentially hostile universe. I don't know if it was in direct response to Dr. Hawking's comments or not, but around that same time, you were quoted in the media as saying that NASA is ready to, quote, protect Earth and our species, unquote. Exactly what did you mean by that statement? Well, uh, indeed, um, Stephen is is a really uh, well-respected, deep-thinking scientist, and, and, and when he comments on topics, it's something that we should really think about and consider. Mm -hmm. But we're really a long way away from uh, encountering the kind of intelligent life that I believe Stephen was referring to. As I mentioned earlier, planetary science at NASA is really all about uh, stepping out into our own solar system. And we know that our own solar system, uh, uh, Earth is the only unique body in this environment that houses life as we know it in terms of human and complex life. However, that doesn't mean that, that life in other forms, perhaps in, in uh, uh, microbes and, and uh, uh, other less complex life, uh, hasn't evolved elsewhere in the solar system, and that's what we're that's what we're seeking in 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 these new steps. Now, to be able to do that and do that right, we do indeed uh, follow the international rules of planetary protection. Planetary protection is really quite clear, and it's really all about if we're going to go somewhere and study life, we have to be careful about contaminating that life with our own life. In other words, mm -hmm. uh, we send sterile spacecraft, and, and you know, when Phoenix got on the dirt and, and dug into the dirt on Mars, uh, that arm and the, and, and the equipment uh, 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 tray uh, that was acquiring the, the, the dirt and the material, that was all sterilized. That was uh, put in a bio barrier, and that was uh, very carefully managed such that, such that we didn't contaminate that environment. Now, in a similar way, we've actually brought back samples. You know, we brought back samples from uh, uh, comets. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Stardust uh, uh, flew by WILT-2 and brought back uh, some fabulous uh, samples that we've started to study. And, in fact, in those samples most recently, we found the amino acids glycine. Now, glycine uh, is just a fabulous uh, find for us and, and, and really allows us to start thinking about how comets could have seeded not only the Earth but, but um, uh, other planets with some basic materials that, that, that are important for life and sustaining life. So uh, in that respect, we have to be very careful about whatever we bring back that we also don't contaminate the earth. Okay. And so 
there are a variety of, rule, uh, of uh, policies and procedures, rules, if you will, that we follow very closely that will enable us to manage and, and, and carefully analyze any samples that we bring back and protect the Earth. And so when I was talking about that, uh, it was in that framework. I see. One of the backbones of the Planetary Science Division appears to be the Research and Analysis Program. What is the Research and Analysis Program? How does it work? And what are some of the benefits it produces for NASA? Well, the Research and Analysis Program is really all about providing a variety of opportunities for the community. Now, those opportunities range from from opening up the archives, allowing scientists to come in from all walks of life and universities and, 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 and partner with other, other groups, even international groups that work with us, to analyze the data in our archive. That actually is the gold. We have a, we've used our public, the public's funds that have been given to us and we have brought back uh, fabulous data and observations and images and breathtaking landscapes from other parts of our solar system, and they are publicly available. We want, we want scientists and the public to get access to them through our open archives. But from a scientific perspective, we really want the scientists to get together and get, out, get the answers to the questions that we, ha we have posed out of the data we've brought back. Mm -hmm. And so consequently, we have um, uh, opportunities in our research and analysis program that allow us to uh, propose for research in the outer planets area, propose to do things in planetary atmospheres, look at the atmosphere of Titan uh, and its hydrodynamics. You know, that there's a, there's a hydrological cycle going on in Titan, except it's not raining uh, water, it's raining methane in the southern hemisphere of Titan right now. It has lakes in the northern hemisphere. Liquid water, uh, sorry, lists, uh, sorry, liquid uh, methane is on the surface of Titan. It's the only other planet besides Earth that has liquid on its surface. Fabulous discoveries that have been made, and, and, and that data is there to continue to be mined and continue to be analyzed. We um, in addition to that, we have uh, uh, all kinds of opportunities to study Mars, uh, the inner planets, uh, the moon. We have uh, quite, a, quite an important program that we work with the Exploration uh, Systems Missions Directorate uh, on lunar data. Um, and we look at uh, near-Earth objects and, and do a variety of uh, science analysis with those. And we also do uh, some opportunities in building some instruments. Uh, whether they're for astrobiology purposes or other, other measurements in situ or imaging uh, uh, remote sensing purposes, uh, we do want to fund some really critical new technologies and developments to see how those might be applied to some of, some of the instruments uh, that, uh, for our future. So uh, the program is really quite broad. Uh, we spend well over $200 million a year on that. And it's really reaping enormous benefits, and I think it's, it's the heart of the science discoveries that you're seeing coming out on a regular basis in planetary science. Throughout your career, you've been involved with data collection, management, and dissemination technology. The amount of scientific data being generated has increased exponentially over the last three decades. Has the technology required to manage an archive at kept pace, and how does NASA deal with this problem? 
good question, and I would say with, with respect to the planetary science data, the answer would be yes. And, and the reason I say that is, uh, you know, we don't bring in as much data as, for instance, Earth science, mm -hmm. because uh, Earth is right here, and, our, and those satellites orbit this planet and can beam directly down to the Earth a huge amounts of data. It's much harder to do that uh, with our spacecraft that are so far away. Uh, and so, consequently, the, the what is called the bit rate or the rate of data that comes from these spacecraft is much less. And so, therefore, the volume of data that we have in our archive is much less. Now, that means we have several hundred terabytes of data that we've acquired over the last 40 years. So it's an enormous amount of data. However, Earth science has sometimes terabytes, you know, mm -hmm. in, in a few days. Right. And so consequently, um, the technologies of storage and dissemination and the things that that, uh, that community is dealing with uh, are really pioneering uh, other, other things uh, that we take advantage of because we don't have quite the data volume. Now, with that said, uh, the best thing to do with data that comes in is, is being able to provide it online and provide it in a way where the information about the data is available for scientists to make decisions about using it or not using it, and even more importantly, how to use the data correctly. And so that we call metadata, and we generate metadata along with that and keep that uh, associated with each of the data that comes in. We've developed a system called the Planetary Data System. It's one of NASA's oldest distributed data system. Uh, we have quite a few nodes uh, uh, stretched all across the country, and uh, uh, data is constantly pouring into these nodes, and, and they're being managed by, by government and, and, and NASA and other universities uh, uh, and doing an outstanding job, and we're going to continue, continue on with that structure. You have also become one of the world's foremost authorities on magnetospheres. What are magnetospheres, and what is it about them that captured your interest? Okay. Uh, it's uh, pronounced magnetosphere. Magnetosphere. Magnetosphere, yes. Uh, um, uh, and um, actually, that, my interest in that really uh, started when I was at the University of Iowa. Um, I really enjoyed uh, uh, the electromagnetic classes that I had, the E&M classes, and, and uh, all about the electromagnetic spectrum, and in particular, the radio end of the spectrum. Now, uh, radio waves are actually generated by magnetospheres. We've, we've known that one of the brightest objects and the first object discovered in, in radio frequencies was Jupiter. And uh, Jupiter has uh, uh, decimetric emissions uh, that we were observing uh, from Earth, and uh, that, that's, that's actually a magnetospheric phenomena. So my interest in magnetospheres actually started with my interest in that end of the, radio, of the electromagnetic spectrum, the radio end of the spectrum. And so uh, now that we have spacecraft that actually make measurements in these magnetospheres, we see a tremendous host of radio and, and uh, uh, extremely low frequency and ultra-low frequency radio waves um, and, and it's fascinating to me uh, to understand the physics of how those are generated and, and, and uh, what, what they mean and what they tell us about the environments of those magnetospheres. 
While we're on the subject of magnetospheres, when you were at the Goddard Space Flight Center, you were a co-investigator and deputy project scientist on the Imager for Magnetopause to Aurora Global Exploration Mission, otherwise known as IMAGE. Tell us about that mission and what it accomplished. Well, IMAGE was um, a real delight to be involved with. Uh, my my um, actual start in IMAGE uh, really occurred in the late 80s. I wrote a proposal to study uh, the use of electromagnetic waves uh, to study various aspects of magnetospheres and using those waves as um, a cop uses a, a radar wave to understand your speed. Mm -hmm. Same principle, but I was taking it into the magnetosphere. And so um, uh, I, I did get approved to do that research. I began in the 90s to uh, bring a pull a team together. Um, and uh, uh, we eventually ended up developing an instrument called the Radio Plasma Imager, RPI, and we were able to uh, get it on the IMAGE mission along with uh, uh, another group of fabulous instruments that are remote sensing instruments. And uh, RPI was just an unbelievable instrument in the sense that not only it would, it would measure electromagnetic waves that are intrinsic to a magnetosphere, but it would generate waves, bounce off structures, enable us to really visualize what these plasmas look like uh, using radio wave techniques. Uh, the, the instrument was so successful that uh, uh, we generated um, almost a, a peer-reviewed publication a month from, from, about, the, uh, from about a team of uh, eight to ten of us. Uh, just a tremendous opportunity to, uh, that allowed us to really understand magnetosphere solar wind dynamics, how things change, and really bring that to a visual perspective. We could, we could see the plasma sphere. This is the evaporated ionosphere. We could see where it goes. We could see how it was trapped in the Earth's magnetic field. We could see it generate electromagnetic waves. We could see it undulate. Uh, we could see uh, uh, tremendous aspects uh, with that satellite and, and the other imagers that were on it with the higher, high energy particles that were showing up that were generating geomagnetic storms and the auroras were fabulous. We could, we could understand when an aurora were, would occur, the intense electromagnetic waves that were generated above aurora were called auroral kilometric radiation. So we could see the aurora and see the auroral kilometric radiation and understand a lot more about the dynamics and how the magnetosphere was generating these radio waves. And by doing that around the Earth, we were then developing the understanding of how that's being done at other locations in our solar system, such as Jupiter. And Jupiter does the same kind of stuff, but does it in a bigger way because it has a much more intense magnetic field and a much higher intensity set of uh, energetic particles. So IMAGE was a spacecraft launched in 2000, lasted for about five years, and uh, just was highly successful and, and, and a very exciting time in my career to be associated with it. Looking ahead, what would you say is the Planetary Science Division's top priority over the next five years? Well, I would go back to um, the, our key goals, understanding the origin and evolution of the solar system. We are just now seeing the revolution that's going on in that field, and we have much more to learn about it. Uh, I'll, give me a, I'll give you a perfect example. 
uh, is Pluto a planet or not? Now, that is that is a topic we that that even kids can resonate with. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we we now uh, think of Pluto as a part of a different class of objects is uh, is a, is shows an evolution in our thinking. And and if I can take a minute, uh, perhaps I can give you a little um, understanding of how how that goes. Sure. Um, in uh, if we go back in time, let's say uh, 1850. Okay. If you in 1850 went into a library pulled out the physics book and looked at the chapter on solar systems because you wanted to study and memorize the names of all the planets in the solar system, how many planets would you need to study? 1850. Hmm. I have no idea. (laughs) All right. You would probably be very surprised if I told you 23. Yes, I would. Yeah, well, you would. (laughs) You would be. You would have to study those, and and and, and the reason why there was 23 is because in about 1800s, the early 1800s, the telescopes were getting great. Many people in the public were starting to use that. Mm-hmm. Amateurs were finding all sorts of objects. It was quite an exciting time to be a ground-based astronomer, and you were seeing objects like Vesta, Ceres, Eros. In other words, you were observing bodies in the asteroid belt. And you had no technology to figure out whether they were planets or not, right? Correct. So you assumed they were planets. That's right. You called them planets. But by 1852, when when the astronomers got together and really began to noodle on what's going on here, you recognized that this was really a different class of objects. And that class was defined as asteroids. And that, and that now we know there's probably a million or more asteroids in the asteroid belt, which exists between Mars and Jupiter. We are right now in the same part in our history in this in exactly analogous way by thinking about Pluto. Pluto turns out to be what we call a Kuiper belt object, another class of objects. Now this is fantastic. How did this occur? Well, around 1990, uh, uh, because telescopes on Earth were getting also quite quite outstanding, they continue to prove with time. Uh, a series of astronomers were observing and finding planet what were objects, okay, could be planets, but were objects at greater distances than Pluto. And uh, uh, that we now know, since 1990, we've we've observed about 1,300 of these objects, one of which is is bigger than the planet Pluto at the time. Mm-hmm. And that and that object's called Eros, and uh, it's about twice as far as Pluto is from us right now. Uh, so this whole new set of objects that we're finding, uh, we now call the Kuiper Belt, after uh, some of the original observations uh, done by Kuiper uh, in finding these, and now we're wanting to study those. So, so our mission called uh, uh, New Horizons, which will fly by fly by Pluto in, in 2015, will be our first fabulous glimpse of a completely new type of object. Once again, a Kuiper Belt object, and it will be quite fascinating to to understand its differences, understand a lot more about its structure, its shape, um, and and see how these objects are really part of the origin and evolution of our solar system. So it just gives you a hint 
of, of what we need to find and what we need to do and understanding that by going into the Kuiper Belt and by understanding its relationship to, that, to our current structure and perhaps even life here on Earth. Um, and there's a couple good, uh, good models that tell us that, uh, that uh, in time, these Kuiper Belt objects may have actually come inward and provided uh, a fair amount of water as they rained on our, on our own planet early on in its history. So uh, the Kuiper Belt and its relationship to our so within our solar system will be fabulous to study. Now, in addition to that, uh, we want to make progress on, on uh, once again, habitability, and we want to make progress on whether there is life uh, uh, elsewhere in our solar system. And as I mentioned, I think we're on the path with MSL to make some fabulous measurements on Mars that takes us in the, uh, that takes us one giant step closer to answering that question, at least for that for that particular planet. And we want to follow up on that. So. Um, uh, this next decade in, a, in, in planetary science is going to be incredibly rich, with fabulous amounts of data, uh, and I think we'll make some we'll make some really continue to make some really outstanding and astounding discoveries as we move into the future. Thank you, Dr. Green. We here at NASA Tech Briefs appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today.